Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello and welcome everyone, my name is Vaughn Hyde. I'm the host of IndiePod, an indie games podcast. With the help of my illustrious co-host, the biggest of average Josh Boys, we bring you all the indie games news you need to know, as well as shouting out some amazing indie games over on crowdfunding sites and occasionally derailing to a conversation about big anime chesticles. We are so happy to be part of the HP Video Game Podcast Network alongside so many other awesome gaming podcasts. So if you love indie games, make sure to listen in each and every Friday. This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. Um, is the uh, Monkey Boy Kirky, is that a uh, reference to the DK rap by any chance? Or are you voicing Donkey Kong? <laughs> uh, well, years ago when I was a kid, right, I had a hairstyle and my hair swept back at the top. My friend used to call me Urko from, uh, from uh, Planet of the Apes. Oh, okay. Uh, it's kind of snowballed on from Urko to Monkey, Simeon, and then all the guys at Rare, I told them by mistake that that was what I used to get called as a kid, and so from then onwards they called me Monkey Boy Kirky, Simeon, Chimp. <laughs> you know, that, is just, that was just my, my name forever at Rare, so that was it, yeah. <laughs> What's up, Argonauts, and welcome to another Retro Gaming Podcast. This is another episode of Rcast Mini, and uh, this is a very special one because I am here with the one and only Grant Kirkhope, a music composer in the video game industry who's probably like one of the biggest names, honestly, as far as uh, as far as the, that you know, that field is concerned. Uh, so, Grant, it is uh, like an, an absolute pleasure, honestly, to, uh, to meet you here. Oh, I'm very kind for such a big introduction. I don't feel like I'm that big a deal, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, very, it's very kind of you. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously, like, you know, there's there's like a lot of like different aspects of your career I wanted to cover, but I figured we, we, you know, we would start from the beginning. So, you grew up like around music at an early age with your mother as a music hall dancer and your dad being a big music fan in general, uh, exposing you to the likes of Frank Sinatra and Glenn Miller. Would you say a career in music was something that you were pushed into, or that you simply had natural inclination towards? Definitely, the start I had a natural inclination towards it. But in the UK, when you get to um, 16, uh, 14, I think it is, 14, you have to choose your subjects at school. So you kind of go through school and, you know, do all the, all the general stuff. And then you, and when I was there, they were called O-levels. So you do O-levels at, six, at 14 to 16, and then 16 to 18, you do your A-levels before you go to university. So when I was when I was doing my – I went to choose my um, O-levels. Um, my, I went with my dad, and um, I'd chosen to do woodwork, like carpentry, you know, along with other stuff that, you know, that I was doing. And they said, well, you know, don't you think it's a bit daft that you're not doing music, you know, because you say <laughs> And I was like, well, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about that. And that's so they kind of, at that point, they talked me to do musical level. Um, but that's the only time I feel like I got pushed into it. Um, gotcha. And I think when I went on to, I mean, I, I was playing rock bands back even then, back then. I wanted to do that on guitar. That was my favorite thing to do, like metal bands and stuff, you know. Hmm. Um, but then when it got to 18, um, music teacher at the time was called David Turmer, who was a huge influence on me uh, as for my A-levels. And he sort of said, you know, through those two years, said, you, know, you should probably look at going to university, you know, to do, to do music. And I was like, well, you know, is that a good idea? And my parents were like, you know, that's probably not a great idea because, you know, it's going to get nowhere. Music gets you nowhere, you know. Right, um, yeah. 
Got to get like a real career in that case. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah precisely that. And so, um, but I, I kind of thought, well, if I go to university, it's another four years of not doing anything. So um, I'd have to get a job, you know, so I kind of, you know, I was a good trumpet player. So I went I went to the Royal the Cozy Music and did four years of that. Yeah. Mm, very cool. And um, so like the bands that you were like a part of then, um, you, you said that they were like black metal, basically, like just like the, the, like the genre of music? Not black metal, just metal. Like Judas Priesty, uh, Iron Maiden, that kind of thing. Gotcha, gotcha. Really cool. Um, so you first joined Rare in the mid-90s working on music for uh, for major titles such as Killer Instinct 2, GoldenEye 007, Banjo-Kazooie, and Perfect Dark. Uh, what was that transition like uh, for you going from playing in bands to working on these projects? It was amazing. Like, you know, I think I spent basically 11 years of my life, like 22 to 33, playing in bands. And that's, all, that's all I did. I, I, never, I never got a job. I lived, lived at home with my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to pretty old age. Uh, and, um, you know, I just thought I was probably going to be some kind of failure playing in crappy bands forever. You know, some of the bands that I played for did really well and some did, did badly. But by the time I got to 33, I was just kind of playing in covers of bands in my local area um, to make a living, really. You know, that's what I was doing. Not, not much of a living at all, really, just a little bit. <clears throat> and then my friend, uh, Robin Beanland, who was, he played in one of the bands locally that I played in. Um, and he was a keyboard player, and he used to always make up little little demos um, of like computer music kind of thing. And he, you know, that's, he, he, and he said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna try and get a job." And I, I just ignored it, thinking it's nonsense, you know. And then one day, he sort of announced that um, he'd got a job at this company called Rare in the UK, and I'd never heard of them. And off he went, and like no one that I knew got a job. We all just spent most of our time, you know, signing on unemployment benefit. And then, right. <laughs> and then going on tour and then coming back and signing back on an unemployment benefit and that kind of thing. We never actually made any real money. Just that's all my friends did. We never got jobs, you know. So I was kind of amazed that, that he ended up getting a real job, getting <laughs> real money. I was like, my God, how does that work, you know? So about a year and a half went by. He'd been at Rare a year and a half. He said, you know, Greg, you've been on the unemployment benefit just about 11 years. <laughs> on yeah. and on. He said, uh, don't you think it's time to get a job? And I was like, well, you know, what can I do? He said, well, why don't you try to do what I'm doing? I said, well, I suppose so. I mean, I played a lot of games, pardon me, at the time. Um, so he, he recommended, you know, some gear to buy. I bought an Atari ST computer, a copy of Cubase, uh, like a, an EMU Proteus synth module, and just sat at home for, in my bedroom writing tunes that I thought would be appropriate for video games. And I sent rare five cassette tapes over the course of that year and never got a reply. And then out of the blue... I got a letter saying, please come for an interview. And I got interviewed by Dave Wise and, the, and Simon Farmer, the general manager. And I got the job. Couldn't believe it. So, like, going from being on the dole, you know, on, on the unemployment benefit to actually having a real job at Rare was, was it was unbelievable. I mean, you know, to be working at a company that was so prestigious because it they'd just been, it, it made the news in the UK that Nintendo had bought half the company or just under half the company. Right, yeah, that was like the big like point really of the, of the company. Yeah, yeah, incredible. So I was like, I couldn't believe. It. I mean, like for me going there was like me going to work at Disneyland. It was just incredible, um, <laughs> you know. And to get there and just be in that environment, it was such a shock, and it was so exciting. Like I, I never forget those early days at Rare. It was so exciting for me just just to be there. There was lots of great people. The Robin was there. Graham Norgate was there. You know, Dave Wise was there. They were all pretty established. I mean, Graham was doing Blasco, Robin and Killer Instinct. Robin had done Killer Instinct One. They were doing all Dr. Kong and everything else, you know. So, you know, it's pretty daunting to be there with those guys because they were all really good. And I was just learning. I was pretty not that great at computers. I didn't really understand it very much or samplers or any of that kind of stuff. So I had to learn it when I got there. Um, 
So I was just trying to get ahead above water at the start. I found it diff- like doing my first game, converting Dave Wise's tunes from Donkey Kong Country to uh, Diddy Kong's Quest to work on the Game Boy was my first job, you know. So getting it to work on the Game Boy to me was difficult because I've never, it was all in hex. There was no MIDI files or friendly things that I recognised. It was just a black screen with numbers on it. as you go kind of thing yeah yeah and Dave Dave Showman at work I was like oh my god this is like programming I, I, no I'm going to have to quit I'm, I'm, I'm never going to do this you know mm. um, so uh, yeah it was a shock and super exciting and all that stuff it was just you know amazing awesome awesome um, so many many gamers I know still hold like fond memories of Rare, especially during like the Rareware days uh, as a second party developer for, for Nintendo as you mentioned um, in your opinion what made Rare so special back then honestly I think it was Tim and Chris Stamper um, the guy, the, the two brothers that ran it, um, they were just, particularly Tim, just like lightning rods. They're just, you know, uh, you know, you have to remember where they came from. They, you know, they were the ultimate play of the game. That was their company. And they made lots of games for the spectrum. That's right. Yeah. And then they just up and stopped doing that. And so they're not do that anymore. And they reverse engineered the NES. Uh, and, you know, through Joel Hochberg, who was their American partner who knew Nintendo, sent a game to Nintendo that did reverse engineered. Nintendo couldn't believe it. You know, like, they never once looked at a Western developer for anything. And, you know, to do that, um, to then Nintendo to say, my God, please make games for us. I mean, it's incredible. <laughs> you know, like, I always found, I worked more closely with Tim just because of the teams I was on at the time. Um, and Tim was just one of those, you know, absolute lightning rods. Whatever you did, he'd go, that's great, but what about this? He always had an idea. You'd kind of go, "Oh God, what a great idea!" There's always that in his back of his mind. I mean, those, and I can't. It's hard to put into words how sort of creative that period of Rare was. I mean, that's why Rare was so great back then. Everybody was firing on all cylinders back then. Everybody was really going for it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just bled into the games. And I think Tim and Chris sat at the top of the company. Were, were like they're like big kids in us in some respects. And they really were, and they always had that kind of that insight, that kind of have to make, I guess, kids and children love what they what they made. They just had such a fantastic way about them. And I loved working with Tim back then. It was just the best ever. And Greg Mayles, who was like Tim's number two, um, you know, I worked with Greg, you know, all my time at Rare. Uh, and he was just the same. They have that kind of childlike quality. And I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory fashion. I mean, this just got that connection somehow. Yeah, but, it helps with like games too in that case. Yeah, sure. it just yeah. made it so exciting and like, it was, you know, you know, I say Tim and Chris for me, top of the company. They were, the, they were the guys that everything bled from them. Everything. Mm-hmm. Very cool, very cool. And um, you've been nominated uh, for awards by BAFTA, ASCAP, uh, IFMCA for your work on Viva Pinata, Civilization Beyond Earth, and Kingdoms of, uh, Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning, respectively. Um, would you say that respect for music in video games has gone up a lot over the years? And is there still room for more recognition in this particular field beyond just the gaming industry? No, definitely. Like, you know, that's that's another part of the thing that's, that I never expected, to think that, you know, I started off on a four-channel Game Boy that could play three mono notes, and then, you know, t- within 10 years, I'm writing for, like, full live orchestra. It's incredible.
And I mean, I think when we're at Rare, Rare was a very private company and it kept things quiet. Jim used to always say, you know, we're not pop stars, we just make games, let the games do the talking. We never use it, it's always very clandestine like that. And I think it played in Rare's favour to be that way because it's always a, such a secretive place. Once I moved to the US in 2008, I kind of, my first kind of realisation that video game music was bigger than I thought it was, was like the MAGFest guys. And some of the MAGFest guys, it's run from Baltimore where I was working at the time, the big, mm-hmm. huge games. And I met those guys and they're like, you should come along to MAGFest and, you know, you'd see what, in its early days, you know. And like, I couldn't believe, it was just incredible how much people, how many people there were just, were massive on video game music. It was a, <laughs> to me. I just like, oh my God, you know, I did a few panels and like people were going crazy. And, I, and it's my first kind of, Real, realization that it, it was a it was a big thing you know and it's only got bigger and bigger since then i mean you know you've got the uk you've got you know now in the uk on classic fm they have a, a dedicated uh, video game uh, radio show that, that um jessica curry who writes for you know um uh, uh, everyone's gone to rhapsody and you know uh, all, all those great games and she hosts the show you know it's on classic on classic fm like they run a whole of fame chart every year where people vote in for the favorite classical pieces it's always like you know Vaughan Williams and all the great guys at the top of the chart but then a few years ago I started to get voted in and Jeremy Soul and Koji Kondo and you know people like that and Yamatsu and it's like the top of the top yeah (laughs) I got to like number 12 on the year I mean obviously a lot of the classical guys weren't very happy about it but you know it it was it's it's just growing and growing and growing you've got all the all the the concerts around the world orchestras are playing video game music pretty regularly yeah and and they're playing to sell that you know when they put a video game concert on it it sells out in five minutes flat Mm -hmm. you know the LSO London Symphony Orchestra doing video game concerts you know I think people are learning that you know, to, to, to the uneducated person, they still think it's a bit bleeps and boops. You know, they don't really understand where it's got to now. But I, I think that um, there's no real difference between movie soundtracks and game soundtracks these days. They're like they're just as epic and just as big, just as orchestral. And and games have also got that whole chip tune side, that the electronic side too, which is a massive wealth of great music out there. You know, I think that it kind of depends on on, on like the project in that case for sure. Like depending on like what kind of feel that they're going for, if they're going for that more retro kind, you know, kind kind of vibe, then you know they'll have like kind of chip tune style for sure. But I mean, like a lot of these like AAA titles now, like they have like, these like, full like or, like orchestras, like pretty much. And like I don't know if you saw like, with, with with like the Game Awards, like they had like that Red Dead Redemption Two uh, performance there, which uh, you know with all the singers and like musicians and all that stuff all put together it's just like amazing to see yeah and no, i think that you know it's i think it's i think the sky's the limit that's what i think i think you know i guess from i guess from me being a U, even i live in america now i'm still i feel like i'm a uk person and i still think that the the problems every year that's that big set of concerts in the summer that they do at the royal albert hall uh, we can't be far away from a video games night on, on the problems which you know for me would be that would be a real mark of something i think for video games in, in you know in, in the and i do feel like it's, it's everywhere now it's getting everywhere yeah, I mean, like I think, like what you're saying with you know with like with with like, video game music like being at proms, uh, that's like certainly going to be like more of a thing, or or you know, or even has been a thing really, as like more and more people who have grown up with games and with like the music and loving the music for sure, um, are like at that age pretty much to you know to have that be a thing really for, for them to kind of like incorporate that really in their like everyday kind of like you know life in terms of music. And um, I could say for me personally, like you know, in terms of, like rare games, uh, I remember like a time when I picked up Killer Instinct on the SNES. And um, you know, getting like the killer cuts, like a soundtrack CD that, like, that yeah. you know that it came with, and I was just like in love with that CD. It was just like so cool, and um, it was like one of the first instances I remember where I truly fell in love with like a video game soundtrack, like a soundtrack as a whole, not just like you know like a tune here and there or a song here and there, but just like the entire soundtrack is like okay, this is like an actual thing, and they and, and they know like what they're doing. With this. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I, I really feel that like video games music has, has kind of reintroduced an entire generation back to just instrumental music again. Like mm-hmm. I feel that people got very used to pop songs and having a singer singing something. And I think the, old, the instrumental music was kind of condemned to being a bit like the classical stuff that no one really wanted to listen to anymore because it was old hat and not very modern, you know. Right. And I think that right. now it's you've got that whole thing where, you know, as I say, several generations now have been reintroduced to just purely, you know, instrumental music, whether it be you know, electronic or, um, or orchestral. Um, so I think that's really special. I think I look at my son, my son's 16, right. Um, and you know, he doesn't listen, he doesn't listen to anything that's vaguely in the pop charts. I mean, not a single thing. His entire playlist is just video game tunes from all the games that he likes. Makes and sense. Uh, yeah. He's your son. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, I know, but like, even so it's a bit like, you know, that's unusual for me. It's a bit like, you don't like any pop songs at all. Well, no, my, my daughter does, but my, my son doesn't. I think people get, I've got a way more eclectic taste. They'll have, you know, their Metallica sat next to Zelda, sat next to something else. You know, it's no, it doesn't matter to them anymore. So there's no kind of categorization. It's just like, I like this song, I listen to it. I, th- I think that's a fantastic way to be, you know. So It's all music in the end, really, in that case. Yeah, it, so I kind of thought, you know, it's, that's the first time I really realized that a lot, a lot of these friends are that way. They just have video games tunes on the, on the, on the you know, on, on, the, on the playlist. So it's, um, it's so changed. It's, it's incredible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and after Rare went through like a transition period in 2010, um, you, you left the company to work freelance. Uh, you also had some choice words, I know, uh, towards Microsoft stating, I think Rare have completely effed themselves and it isn't their fault. It's Microsoft's fault. They have completely ruined that company and it makes me cry every day of my life. So you know, some very strong words there. Um, so my question to you is, do you still harbor resentment towards Microsoft for their handling of Rare? That's a tough question. I think I think at the time I was I was pretty pissed off. Like yeah. I, mean, I, I, mean, I, I left Rare for a reason, um, and I felt I mean Tim and Chris had left the company, but just before I left, and I kind of felt the magic had gone at that point, and I really felt like, you know, what are we going to do next? So I didn't. I left before they started on the Connect Sports stuff. Um, right, I remember that. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, Connect Sports arguably did do very well. I mean, the first two sold a lot of copies, but the third one didn't. Um, and I just felt like, you know, all the people that I remember being there who made the great stuff weren't there anymore. They'd left or they'd, they were just side sidelined or I didn't feel like it was a place it used to be. I mean, it was such a fantastic experience. Um, and for me to see it not not do as well as it was doing for whatever reason just was hugely upsetting to me. Um, I never thought I'd ever want to leave that place. I thought I'd be there forever. Um, you know, so I think that, I think Microsoft... Like when when the, the deal first went down, Ed Freeze was the head of Microsoft Game Studios, so he was a real gamer, and we had a lot of faith in Ed Freeze. But, but literally, after the deal was done, he quit. You know, then Shane Kim takes over. He was like a business manager who doesn't know anything about games. It's a bit like, oh, that's not going to go so well, you know. The vibe was also very different at that point. Yeah, yeah, I like, and also Microsoft bought Rare for a reason because they wanted to get broad appeal content onto the, onto the original Xbox. Now we, we we couldn't possibly create enough games to, to to completely champion the broad appeal content. We just didn't have enough. I didn't have enough staff, you know, to do that. So you know, Grab by the Goonies came out in a massive backlash against it from all the, all the Nintendo guys who just didn't want to hear from Rare anymore because we were no longer with Nintendo. Sure. And yeah. you know, it just went downhill from there. But also, 
I guess a lot of people don't know, but a lot of infighting at Rare started at that point. Um, that I guess people don't really talk about or don't know about. So things was it kind of like people saying that like the company sold its soul maybe a little bit in terms well, of like going to Microsoft. It wasn't really that. It was just it was internal fight, fighting amongst the teams, which had never happened before. And it kind of it was start it started just before Microsoft got interested, um, but it was definitely a thing. Okay, um, so it's already kind of starting to head in that direction. You feel, yeah, like. it, it was definitely like you know an undercurrent of unhappiness at Rare, gotcha. um, okay. for various reasons. So I kind of felt that that started earlier, and I was, I guess, I was more one of the old school. Even though I wasn't one of the first guys at Rare by any means, but I was, I was more in the old school. I, I loved everything about Rare, and I, I couldn't believe people were were speaking badly about it. Um, so I think Microsoft, in some respects, bought something on the, that was on the way down. They just didn't know it. And then they just compounded the problem. I think, you know, Rare, we were used to working as a very agile company. Like you'd, you'd have a quick meeting in the morning and you'd just go and do that thing you decided to do. There was no one to run it last. You, you met together, let's change this, right, let's go and do that. And that's how the games got made. It was very like, just, what's the word I'm looking for? Not inspirational. Uh, just, you know, you decide on the, on the flick of a coin. We're going to do it now, it's going to do it and get on with it like that. It's like, you know, where when Microsoft came in, it got more like, now we need like you know focus groups, and uh, you need to run things by us. You're going to do past our production team. We didn't know what they're talking about because they haven't made any games, you know. So all that stuff that we I kind of felt we did well, um, they sucked the life out of it. It became you know you had to run things past. You'd, you'd have to have, have an idea, send it up the chain, wait a week, come back. It was very you know, corporate at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I kind of feel like Microsoft, you know. It's not really their fault. And they, they were used to making Windows and Office and great Office got great products like that, you know, where all that kind of production line stuff works. But when you deal with a bunch of great people who are just a bunch of hippies in a, in a, in a manner of <laughs> Creatives, yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, who just, you know, got used to doing what they felt like at the time, um, it didn't work. Right. So, and I guess that's what probably made most of us peel off at that point. It wasn't right for us. Um, and I guess the guys that replaced us, maybe it was right for them. Right, yeah. Do you feel like maybe Rare has like a chance of coming back in some way? Like after like they released like Rare Replay, and uh, there's also rumors going around of like a new Banjo Kazooie possibly in the pipeline. I hope so. Like I, I have no insight into Rare whatsoever. I mean, I've got friends there still. There's a few people left that I know, but I have no insight into what they're up to. Um, you know, I feel like it was funny. Like when Microsoft first bought, like in, in Rare in the studio, right? We had all. Over all the walls, we had like framed pictures of all the games of um, a huge great Nintendo tapestry that were got given by Mr. Yamuchi himself to Rare that was in the foyer, like a giant 20 foot tall thing. It was massive. And like they just took it all down. They took all the pictures off the wall. They took the tapestry down. It was almost like they didn't want to be associated with what Rare did in the past. It's a bit like, isn't that just a bit crazy? Like, surely you bought the company for these IPs. Right, yeah. You just, you don't want to hear about it anymore. So yeah, it's kind of strange, honestly. Like, like especially like when that you know that's the whole reason why you're buying the company really is because of the prestige that it holds like with making these you know these great games like in the past. So like, why not try to continue that same quality into new games by still recalling the things that made it so great to begin with? Yeah, that was a bit strange. And then I think that I think Rare Replay that maybe realized that it, they probably should like remember what they used to do, and so right. that, that became a success. And then I guess Greg Mayles is still a good friend of mine. You know, he's a mad, he's mad on pirates, so he's got to make his pirate game now. Hmm. Um, the uh, so, yeah. Yeah, and I, I really don't know how that's doing. I don't know if it's doing well or not. I don't know. 
Um, yeah, I heard it's doing all right. Like at least like it did well as far as like being like a like an Xbox One exclusive anyway. And Xbox One does kind of need like those exclusives right now anyway. So. Yeah, and I, and I suppose yeah. you know it's it's an online game. They're going to keep servicing that. So I don't see how they've got the bandwidth to make any other games. Like the the, the entire studio, I would presume, is on Sea of Thieves. And I, you know, people keep hitting up about Banjo Kazooie all the time. I've heard nothing about another Banjo Kazooie game. I mean, all I can imagine is that they'd find somebody else to do it. I can't imagine Rare doing it in-house. I'd imagine they'd find a studio, like they did with the, when they remade Killer Instinct, they'd get somebody mm. outside to do it. Whether those guys get the humor that we had back then, I don't know. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But I kind of yeah. feel like that's what they'll do. I mean, that would be very tough because that's a very specific type of humor. I feel like it's that dry kind of British humor, you know, that's that's very that's very much prevalent in those games. Like, same thing with Conker's Bad Fur Day. Um you know, it's just very, very tough. I feel like to kind of nail that down if you're not already like the person who made that to begin with, uh, unless you're you're just like you know cloning like the same people basically at that point. Yeah, no, um, I, I don't yeah. know, but I, you know, I think that's a hard thing to do. I think that we read a very, a very kind of in-house humor that we all adopted back then. It was all like kind of piss-taking sarcasm and kind of thing. Like I guess quite Monty Python-esque, really. You yes. know, and I think it was that the reason that Banjo Kazooie is the way it is it just, it's just a t- it's. It, it's that game because we made it. Those fourteen guys, whatever it is, made it. You know that. That's why it's the way it is. Because it, the, the piss taking we used to do every day just bled into the game, right? That's what happened. So that's just, and that's why it turned out the way it did. Um, and I think that I'm not saying it's impossible for somebody else to get that. I'm sure it isn't. But it would just, it would take some other team to totally get that and to put it in the game. Right. Right. And even if they do totally get it, it's not necessarily like, like a guarantee at that point, too, that they'll kind of like get like the same vibe and feel. Because even if you get like, oh, I get it, like it's Monty Python-esque, whatever, like it's a dry, dry British humor. But um, even then, like there's like certain shades of like, you know, that's very much uniquely that team, you know, that like made that, you know, that made that game like very special in that case. So or like the games in general, like with uh, Cockers Bad Fur Day as well. Um, you have also been quoted too, actually, saying that uh, that video game music composers could do a movie, uh, movie score as well as any of the current movie composers out there. Uh, what would you say has kept you invested in creating video game music for over twenty years now, and why not create music for you know for movies or release your own music as original albums? No one's asked me. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised, honestly. Yeah. No, no, like, you know, at, I guess part of the reason for me moving to Los Angeles was to try to get into the movie industry. So mm-hmm. I am actively doing that. I pitched for tons of stuff. I just haven't got any of it. Um, I did that a movie like a, a year before last uh, called The King's Daughter with Piers Brosnan and William Hurt. Mm, um, yeah. It come out yet. There's a huge fighting over it. I've done quite a lot of shorts. I've actually, I've actually just worked on a little um, short animation called The Wrong Rock, um, which is by a guy called Mike Kaywood, who was also at Rare back in the day. Um, oh, okay. I didn't realize at the time he moved to LA too. He's since been working on movies. He's worked on like Paris of the Caribbean and, you know, like all the giant blocks. There's a, the Bumblebee movie that's just coming out, um, Time of the Apes, you know, and he t- you know, as a, as a previous supervisor. So um, he's makes his own animations at the same time. So he got in touch on Facebook. So Grant, I'm making another animation. Do you want to score us? Yeah, of course I will. So I've just done that. It's not out yet. It's, it's finished, but it's not quite out the door yet. Hmm, okay. So that's something I've just done. Um, also, I've done a, a little short movie for a friend called Joey Bravo called um, Hammer Jackson, which is a short, hopefully, to get, get made into a feature. So I am actively doing that. I just haven't, there's nothing to talk about huge, you know, kind of thing. You know, right, right. for me, honestly, like seeing them making a Mario movie, I would like, to, I, I would love to do that. Like, yeah. you know, I just done that. I just done Mario Rabbids the last two and a half years, three years. And I kind of feel that 
I'm the only guy in the Western world, you know, that's touched Mario. It's been done by, you know, Koji Kondo and all the great guys at Nintendo over the years. kind of feel that I've got you know, I've got all the cinematic sequences from my rabbits that you could put them together it would be a movie so you know I don't know I'm, I'm trying my best to try and get in that door um, it's a very very difficult process um, and I have, an, I have a fancy Hollywood agent who kind of uh, you know helps me along um, but you know I would love to be I would love to work on some movies without a doubt you know but I'm, you know but at the same time I do love working on video games so I wouldn't want to stop doing that either I just like to do a bit of both that would be great yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, and like it's just like really interesting though, because like um, I think like when you made that quote, like that, that was actually from um, from like a tweet of yours actually. Um, yeah. That people, I guess, were kind of like taking that as like you, you were like attacking like movie composers, but like I didn't really kind of take it that way myself. But like I know like a lot of people did, so like I wasn't sure if that was like your you know if that was like something that you were kind of like intended to stir the pot a little bit or just kind of get people like to recognize game composers more. Yeah, more that. Like, I love me with the composers. I'm just saying that I felt like there's a, there's equally enough talent in um, uh, video games composers as are in movie composers. I, th- I feel like the, the disciplines are getting so close now um, that there's not a lot of difference. And you've got people like Michael Giacchino, who started in video games, who's now a movie composer. So it's completely possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I just think that um, sometimes I think, I think the younger directors are all games players, right? So a lot of them are, so they're, they're, I don't think it would phase them to hire, a, to hire a video games guy. But I think some of the older directors wouldn't look at video games guys because they, they still think it sounds like bleeps and boots from Game Boy. They don't realize it's moved on since then. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because um, I know there are some game composers, uh, I've even like interviewed some actually, um, who very much like kind of came from that era with like, you know, with like Atari or NES or whatever, and they... They they still play uh, play like the music today, but just like with modern instruments, like the the musicality is like still there. It's just a matter of like updating like how how it is that you go about playing it, uh, especially for like a modern audience in that case, uh, you know, or, or for playing it like live in that case. And um, I know for your music, like it always it always kind of had that orchestral kind of like feel to it. Anyway, even in those early days, like with the uh, you know with with the, the, the you know the you know N sixty four and SNES and all that. Um, so it's, it's just, uh, it's just really interesting to kind of see like how that has like transitioned. But, uh, for people who think that game music is still very much like bloops and bleeps, um, you know, it's, it, I would say, I would, I would make the argument, honestly, it's very much up there in terms of how music is made for, for movies, if not more, because of just like the sheer amount of like moving pieces you have to be like aware of, like, as, as you mentioned there with like Mario and Rabbids with like the cinematics and all that, like making the music to kind of, you know, coincide with that and make sure it all kind of fits together while, you know, while you're kind of also kind of trying to keep in point um, or, or keep in mind really that uh, there is a person kind of controlling the action. Yeah. And also I think with, with games a lot of the time, like for instance, on Mario Rabbids, I had to write sort of two and a half hours of music for that game, which mm. is a lot, right? Um, and in movies, you, you, you're going to write a set of themes that you're probably going to reuse throughout the movie to, impl- you know, kind of thing to imply different characters, like like Star Wars, and you got like Luke's theme and Leia's theme and Han's theme and you know sure. the theme. Lots of times in games, you don't get the chance to do that because they want a new tune per level or a new set of themes per levels. So, you know, you can end up just writing reams and reams and reams of themes. So, like on Mario, it was massively theme intensive. So, every single area had a new set of themes to go with it. 
which is a, a huge undertaking, you know, to kind of write two and a half hours of new stuff, you know, without reusing anything really. Um, so, and that's the same in most games. Um, so I think in movies, you don't get to do that because you get to reuse stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So in some respects, and also with, with a movie, for me, having, having done some now, you, I think it's, you can write the music to completely fit the action. It completely fits because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a linear media form, right? It doesn't change. Where games can change, it's interactive. So mm-hmm. it adds an extra layer of complexity where in movies you can sculpt it exactly right to match the exact action and it's never going to change, you know? So um, I, I feel there's lots of great game composers out there could easily do a movie. There you go. All right. So hopefully more more work will be out there for those game composers like to get than like like beyond gaming for sure because I'm sure like a lot of them are, are looking for that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I know this is like picking like your, your favorite child, um, but do you have a particular soundtrack or piece of music that you personally take the most pride in creating? Um, possibly the Donkey Kong rap or like anything along those lines. <laughs> I think that would be, would be bottom of the list probably. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's fair enough. Fair enough. No, I, obviously I do love the DK rap, but it, you know, it was fun to do at the time. I mean, at the time, people re- really didn't like it. It got mm-hmm. quite slagging in, in the press. They all said, oh, God, Grant's trying to be a rapper. And I like, that wasn't what it was about. It was to be a joke. <laughs> right, yeah. to kind of wait 20 years for people to like it so that's quite good <laughs> uh, of course i've got a soft spot for it it's, it, it's it was great fun i think you know i've got a soft spot for banjo kazooie of course because that was my first game i did by myself completely like all the effects and all the music yeah um golden eye 2 was also to get to work on the bomb theme was amazing but i guess for me i suppose the first viva pinata was my first time i got to work with live orchestra that was amazing there's a, there's a track in there called tranquil hours which is which i really like that one Also, you know, doing Mario Rabbids was was so special the last, well, I guess, nearly three years now I've done that game. Um, that was, you know, I just, you know, when I first started that game, I had no idea what it was, what, what was going to be. Um, I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know how it was going to end up. Um, and, you know, or, or how the guys were going to be in Milan and Paris that I had to work with. And, you know, working with Davide Soliani and uh, Romain Brio and uh, those guys over there, you know, um, I had such a fantastic time over the last three years working with those guys. I mean, David is like, you know, they're like my best friends now, you know? Um, so, and you know, if someone had told me in 1995, you're going to get to work on Mario, I would never have believed it. I would have gone, you're crazy. It's never going to yeah. happen. <laughs> you know, you know, it, how can, as a, you know, Mario's, Mario's probably the biggest video games character ever right, in the world, right? Most sure, reckon- it's a Mickey Mouse of gaming. Yeah. 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 I mean, I still sometimes don't believe I did it, you know? Like Koji Kondo is such a legend. How on earth was I going to 
follow in his footsteps. <laughs> Very, you know? Yeah, yeah. How am I going to do that? He's the man. Just he's total brilliance. I'm just like this bloke from. We <laughs> 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 haven't really got a clue what he's doing after time. You know. I, just I mean, I would give you more more credit than that personally, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how am I going to do this? You know. So yeah, Mario Rabbids has got a really special place in my heart too. I think it was. A, I've had, it was. It wasn't just a great game. It was, it was such a great experience. All the people that I had to deal with. It was just the best. It was really great. Sure, yeah. I mean, like, I know for me, I mean, I, w- I was pretty hyped about the game when it was originally announced, uh, just because of the idea of a Mario XCOM-like game, pretty yeah. much. Uh, like, I-, I love the concept of it, but I, I remember, like, like one of the things that, uh, that that really kind of pushed me to actually, like, pre-order the game and, like, you know, and, and you know, and really get myself, like, just kind of prepared for it, uh, was knowing that you were attached to, to the music, honestly, and, like, knowing that you were attached <laughs> wow. to the music uh, just kind of told me that there was going to be that level of quality that would be expected, honestly, with any game that has your music attached to it. I think when it first got announced about the Rabbids, it got a bit of a slag in. It got, well, like, oh, God, what's going to happen? So that was quite demoralizing for the team to hear that. Um, mm. But I think that um, once people got the gist of it, and, I, you know, when I first heard about it, that's a bit of a strange crossover. But the minute you saw it, it was so perfect. Like, yeah. You know, and they had the personality and all the rabbits, like your rabbit peach is a bit of a sassy diva, you know. You know, it was so, it was so and like Davide's was a huge rare fan, right? So he was trying to get all that kind of rare humor into the yeah. game. That's, that's a little bit irreverent, you know. Um, so I think that it just worked out. It was, and, you know, for me, the rabbits, like, they're just like the minions. They kind of predate the minions. They were like as crazy and stupid as, as the minions are. They're the European minions in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so it just it just made total sense once you saw it. But the trouble was that because no one could see it, we couldn't talk about it. No one got it until they played it right. Right. So um, that E3 when it got announced, um, I, you know, Mr. Miyamoto came on stage. Like we all just jumped out of our skins almost. Like and for the, <laughs> everyone liked it. Everyone went, oh, my God, this looks great. It kind of validated those kind of couple of years where all going, oh, my God, people are, people are like it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was a tough one, that. Yeah, because I, I remember uh, when, like, the rumors came about of, like, a Mario and Rabbids game, uh, people were like, what? How is that going to be, like, a thing? Never mind of, of it being, like, good, you know, in that case. Um, you know, it's, like, it's, it's just, like, really great, like, to see that, you know, that there was that validation for you guys, and also that it did turn out to be, like, a great game, honestly. Like, it's, it's definitely, like, I would say one of my favorite games on the Switch, honestly, in that case. It's, uh, it, it was really, yeah. really great. And, um, certainly the music that they, 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 you know, that you provided was a big part of that. Yeah, it was perfect on the Switch. It works so well. Like, you can, it's great for, for when you take it out, and, and you know, it's, it's funny, it's got the humor. It's, for me, it's got, it's got all the best bits of what that makes a great game. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's humorous. It's challenging. It's it's all that stuff, you know. So I, that's, I like games like that. Very cool. Very cool. Um, and so you're still going strong today, having recently worked on the music for Ukulele, uh, Mario and Rabbids, and A Hat in Time. Um, what what are you currently working on that you can tell us about? Like uh, any, any like future projects that you're like in, um, you know, they they're like working on or tinkering with right now? Oh, I could I, I, I can't say that, can I? No. Um, <laughs> no. I've done, a, I've done a little bit of I've done some little stuff. So I've done a little, so a little bit of music for the game called Chicken Wiggle for uh, okay. June Watson uh, as a little bit of a favour. I've done some tunes for a game called Interstellar Space Genesis, which is a game by Praxis Games from Portugal. It's like an indie sort of space exploration game, quite akin to that kind of civilization feel. Okay. Um, so I've written three tunes for that. So just little things, really, because I did. I must admit, I've been pretty, <laughs> a bit tired. I've had like a, <laughs> but this year was hectic because like doing all the Donkey Kong. DLC for Mario Rabbids was a quite a big deal. And then doing all the E3 stuff was a big deal too. I had to conduct the band and all that stuff, you know. That's right, um, yeah. So that kind of finished in June. And then I had a vacation sort of through July. 
and I did a little bit of a, I did a little bit of stuff for the new ukulele game, which isn't ukulele. It's a platonic game. It's not ukulele things. So I'm not. I probably mis- mispronounced that. The new platonic game. Platonic, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've done a little bit for that as well. So I've done little bits and pieces since sort of August, mm-hmm. um, and I'm still. What am I doing at the moment? Um, did the wrong rock, of course, at animation. Um, so I'm actually writing another trombone. I did a trombone concerto for a friend of mine called Balsfield last year, who's a very famous trombone player. Um, and I'm writing another piece now for another guy called Charlie Vernon, who's a bass trombone player for the Chicago Philharmonic, oh, Chicago, nice. Chicago Symphony. So I'm doing that at the moment. Um, that's just kind of more of a byproduct. So I'm anticipating starting on video game stuff again. Uh, shall we say soon? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> excellent, excellent. So, like, some things possibly on your plate, or that you're just trying to kind of get on the table at this moment? Uh, no, well, no, I think I'm pretty, pretty, more, pretty much locked in at the moment for the next thing. Gotcha. Um, I just can't say what that is. Fair enough, fair enough, awesome. Well, I'm look, looking forward to that. Um, so, like, the last question I have here for you here then is, how does the future of video game music in general look to you? Very bright, very bright indeed. I think I just, I just think it's going to go from strength to trend. I think it's just getting to be a, a full blown its own media form. You know, it's. I think it's going to. It may become the new classical music of the future. That's what I think. It's going to eclipse whatever's gone before. And I feel like people in hundred years ago, looking back at this as being the heyday or whatever. I don't know. I just feel like it's just going to become a whole giant out of control monster. That's what I think. Yeah. I mean, it kind of already is, like, at least like gaming in general anyway, but certainly like the music has certainly gained ground, you know, as you mentioned there with like, um, with like orchestras and like, uh, like even, even like not too long ago, like I say, like a couple of years ago, uh, there was the Symphony of, of the Goddesses, uh, which plays like the Legend of Zelda music, uh, you know, that goes around like, uh, I think worldwide actually. Yeah, and uh, th- they were absolutely amazing. It was just really cool to hear. No, uh, you know, I think for a lot of time orchestras, right, they have, they're always worried about funding and keeping and keeping afloat. And if they just did a few video game concerts, that would float them for the year because they know they're going to sell them out. You know, if they if they did three or four video game concerts once a quarter, let's say every every orchestra in the world, and sell them out every time, it would be a good guaranteed income source for them. And I think that the big orchestras of the world are realizing this, and they're going, well, you know, we could do these concerts and make money out of it, and then we can play maybe more obscure stuff that, that needs to get represented, like modern arts, modern artworks of like music that perhaps isn't so tuneful that people might not want to go and see, but it's important to be out there. So I think that it could fund their experimental stuff, you know. Um, I do feel like it's a, it's a valuable kind of, you know, you know money source for the, for the big orchestras. They could, they could certainly do it. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Grant, thank you. Thank you again for like speaking with me here. Um, I know people can find your work over at grantkirkhope.com uh, and also find you on Twitter at Grant Kirkhope. Yes. No, th- thanks for asking me. And I also, I'm, I've just sort of started getting into the Spotify thing. So I've just created my own Spotify playlist. Oh, nice. Yeah. Plug that. Yeah. It's called uh, Grant Kirkhope's Best Bits. Well, I, mean, I, I think they're my best bits. You may not. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so, so, so I'm, I'm trying to do a bit of that, you know, to try and get it out there a little bit more. So um, yeah, check out the Spotify thing. Cool. Grant Kirkhope's Best Bits. So be sure to check that out on Spotify. That's my playlist, yes. So I don't know if if it's any good, but we'll see. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Go check that out right now, then, in that case. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again, Grant. Anytime. Good to talk to you.
Hey everyone, this is Rob and Jay from the Classic Gaming Podcast. We uh, play and talk about old school video games on our podcast. I know you probably couldn't have guessed that from the name of it, but uh, as for me, I tend to prefer the old, the good old point and click adventure game genre. I also like strategy games. I play a lot of a wide variety of stuff. Uh, uh, as for Jay? Yeah, I'm really partial to RPGs and RTSs, so things like Final Fantasy Tactics and Chrono Trigger to that of StarCraft or Age of Empires. Um, generally at the podcast, we try to stay on topic, but we usually end up going off on super, super far tangents. Give us a listen over at the HP Video Game Podcast Network. You can also find us at ClassicGamingPodcast.com, and uh, we hope you check us out. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.